Good evening. I'm Jeff Bennett. And I'm Amna Nawaz. On the news hour tonight, Senate Republicans block a major bipartisan border security deal. We talk to Democrat Joe Manchin about what happens next. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejects Hamas's ceasefire terms and says complete victory is just months away. And tensions remain high in Iraq as Shia militias regroup after widespread strikes by U.S. forces. If things continue to develop like this with action and reaction by the parties involved, it may lead to an unpredictable regional war. Welcome to the News Hour. Tonight, the future of the U.S. border crisis and for allies across the world rests with the U.S. Senate, which earlier today blocked the bipartisan bill to address immigration and Ukraine funding and now is frozen while considering what happens next. It follows an unusual day in the House yesterday where GOP leadership lost votes on articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and a standalone aid package for Israel. Congressional correspondent Lisa Desjardins has been watching it all unfold. So, Lisa, Senate Republicans and five Democrats blocked that border compromise today in the Senate. The day, of course, is not over yet. Could any part of this compromise survive? That is the question right now. Democrats are trying to salvage the Ukraine, Israel, and other foreign aid portion of this bill. But I want to tell you where we are right now by showing you where we are. Let's take a look at the Senate floor right now. You can see almost nothing happening on the Senate floor. Staffers there, a few senators in and out. And that is because right now we are waiting to see if Republicans and Democrats will agree on uh, a way forward. The question is whether uh, they can actually get to this Ukraine aid bill. Senator Schumer this morning talked to us and said he is hopeful. He wants it to pass the Senate so that it can put pressure on the House. The majority of Republicans in the House said they want to do Ukraine, they want to do Israel, and we hope that if we pass it in the Senate, that the House would then rise to the occasion. The House is in chaos. It doesn't behoove the Speaker well to block everything because 30 hard right-wing people just want chaos. Now, if this Ukraine and foreign aid bill moves forward, we will break down what's in it in future days. But right now, I want to talk about where we are. And I try very hard not to harm people's heads and brains with what <laughs> happens here in Congress. But I want to try and explain the strange paradox that we're in right now. First, as you explain, let's take a look that there is this block from mostly Senate Republicans today and four Democrats, one independent over the border and Ukraine funding bill. Now, so what was next? Democrats have offered this idea of a bill without the border policy in it, just the foreign aid. But the problem is that those same Republicans who are blocking the bigger deal, they want their own border policy ideas in this. Essentially, Jeff, what's going on here is that Republicans don't agree amongst themselves about what this bill should look out. Their internal divides are holding a lot of things up. Right now, Senator McConnell, the Republican leader, Senator Schumer, the Democrat, are trying to work out if they can just bring up enough different ideas to the floor to move anything forward. It is minute by minute, and it could be a long night. And Lisa, in the lower chamber yesterday, the House GOP basically tripped at the finish line in trying to bring articles of impeachment against the DHS secretary. What does it say about their capacity to pass anything or to really just govern at the most basic level? An extraordinary sign that the House actually is not able to govern right now under Republicans doing some of their key priorities. The impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas was a priority for House Republicans. Uh, but as we reported last night, they failed on that vote. Now, it was dramatic. House Republicans were surprised when a Democrat who had been in surgery came to the House floor. But, you know, if if that is the reason that your vote fails, if you're not counting all the potential Democratic votes, you have a much larger problem. Also failed yesterday a bill to fund Israel aid, and Republicans could not get enough support for that. House Speaker Mike Johnson knew that he had a lot of questions hovering over him, and he did speak to reporters about what happened this morning. Democracy is messy. We live in a time of divided government. Uh, we have a razor-thin uh, margin here, and every vote counts. Sometimes uh, when you're counting votes and people show up when they're not expected to be in the building, it changes the equation. Again, the process is messy sometimes, but the job will be done. Now, what's interesting, Jeff, is that he told us, the speaker, that they are committed to bring back the impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas in the future, but 
We did not get answers on what they plan to do on the border itself, the crisis there, or on Ukraine funding. Now, a senator, Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida, says he spoke to Mike Johnson and that Mike Johnson said a larger aid package is dead. So there is a lot of confusion, a lot of questions. I will say I have a very large capacity, I think, for covering, uh, let's say, legislative nonsense and irrationality. Mm -hmm. But this week has given even me a headache and the stakes are incredibly high. Well, how are voters seeing all of this, Lisa, all of this chaos and confusion, as you put it? Let's look at some results from the latest PBS NewsHour, NPR, and Marist poll over who they think handles immigration better. Now, it may not be a surprise that voter, registered voters said it's Republicans, 42 percent, Democrats 30 percent. Now, the next highest category was folks who thought neither party would handle it better, 19 percent. This is important because the politics here are what's driving things, especially for Republicans. They see immigration and the border as a key issue that is helping them at the polls. However, when you dig down deeper and ask about approval of members of Congress, let's look at what registered voters said there. Who do they approve, Democrats in Congress better or Republicans in Congress? Voters feel better about Democrats in Congress, neither, by the way, getting majority approval. Democrats edge out Republicans. But here's the important part. Let's look at how each party's voters looked at their own members. So when you ask Democratic voters, do you approve of your Democratic members of Congress? 77%, yes. Look at that, Republican voters, when asked about Republicans in Congress, barely a majority even approves of members of Congress. Who do Republican voters approve of in our survey? 84% favorable for Donald Trump. And that is the problem for Republicans here. Their own voters don't really like them. Their voters like Donald Trump. They continue to try and be Donald Trump, but they're not. And they're not able to come up with any formula that works. And the result is this legislative gridlock on very big issues. All right. That is Lisa Desjardins breaking it all down for us. Lisa, thanks so much. Welcome. Now, right after Senate Republicans blocked that bipartisan border package, I spoke with West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin to get his reaction. Senator Joe Manchin, welcome to the News Hour. Good to be with you, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Sure. I want to start with your assessment of what transpired in the Senate today. Republicans blocking the border security deal that the GOP initially said it wanted. What do you see as the impact and the implications? of the unraveling of what would have been the most significant immigration law in decades. Jeff, I, I just, I, I can't even describe, I have no description of what I witnessed today on the floor of the Senate. Um, only thing I can tell you, it, it reaffirmed my decision not to run again because I have totally come to the conclusion, they reaffirmed it today, you're not going to fix Washington with the political discourse and division that we have here in Washington. So I'm going to do everything I can going around the country trying to get people to understand that the pressure has to be put on. It's about our country. It's not about you or the party. And people that are running and it's worried about themselves or the party that they represent or the party they belong to, that should be immaterial concerning what the job you have to do, which is basically protecting and defending the Constitution and healing our country. Jeff, 18,000 Border Patrol agents, 18,000 have supported this piece of legislation, not for political reasons. These are people that were totally a, a opposed to Joe Biden's handling of the, of the border since day one. They now have said this is the most transformative piece of legislation that they have seen that would secure a border. And then all of a sudden, because of politics, Jeff, it fell apart. And at the moment, it appears emergency aid for Ukraine, Israel, and the Indo-Pacific region all of that stands in limbo as well. You serve on the Senate Armed Services Committee. Yeah. Absent action from Congress, is there any other way weapons and emergency aid can be delivered to Ukraine? Well, we're trying everything humanly possible, and I would like to think that people can come to their senses. Ukraine desperately needs our support. We need Ukraine to win this fight. We need them to stop Russia. They've been unbelievable what they've been able to do and the damage and they've been able to show the vulnerabilities of Russia, which I think has been helpful when you see those bad actors we have around the world that would like to cohese around another movement. And we have uh, countries that we have foreign concerns, uh, which is Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, uh, and to give them any more validity and to show that Ukraine can do what they can by themselves with the assistance of us, but fighting it themselves uh, and we're not going to be there for them. Shame on anybody that would not be able to continue to support Ukraine. 
to have a victorious outcome. Unbelievable. I want to return to what you said about how this chaos on, on the Hill reaffirms your decision to, to not seek re-election. Back in December, you said that you were launching a two-month winter tour to determine whether there's a national movement for a third-party ticket. It's been two months. What have you decided? Well, I think I've said this, uh, that December, I mean, uh, the Super Tuesday on March uh, will tell you what you have. Are we going to have what we have now? Have they moved and changed their positions any whatsoever? Has the grand old party, can it become grand again? And can the Democratic Party become the responsible, sensible party that it once was? Can they come back or are they going to stay in their respective corners, the extreme left and the extreme right, where you basically have uh, a radical, if you will, radical positions that they're trying to mainstream? They're weaponizing the political process in America. They're making people pick a side. And the other side, whatever side you pick, the other side's supposed to be your enemy, Jeff. Well, I can assure you, the other side is not my enemy. That's my colleague. We might have differences. We might be opponents on different types of subject matters, but we should always be working to strengthen and make our country better. If you want to find out where the enemy is, I can show you where the enemy that wants to do us harm around the country or around the world, but it's not fellow Americans. And we're allowing that to be weaponized. We have to stop that. And the I just said, it's not going to be done here, so I'm going to be talking. There's other good people. Hopefully get more people involved, and let's see what happens. The dynamics of the race likely won't change between now and Super Tuesday. We'll likely emerge with Donald Trump as the Republican nominee and Joe Biden as the Democratic nominee. Um, so what more are you waiting for? Well, well, if that's exactly what we end up with and we see that there is any type of an opening and there's a third party that can truly be competitive and not be a spoiler, that's a whole other condition. That's a whole other scenario. No one knows about that and who those people would be. I believe the country's ready for a person who might have been identified as a Democrat at one time in her life, a person who might be identified as a Republican one time in her life, different party affiliations at one time that aren't going to subscribe to the extremes of both parties and can come together as a team to run our country and put it back together so we continue to be the great United States of America and not let ourselves become the divided states of America. We'll be looking for that. Would that candidate be you? Could be me or many other people. Could be a lot of people. There's a lot of good people that have left this body because what they saw happen today, they couldn't take anymore. I can't either. Ridiculous. Let me ask you this, sir, because no labels own polling from last year shows that Donald Trump gains when a moderate independent candidate is included in the race. He gets a four-point four point gain. Is there a way to be a third-party candidate without being a spoiler? History suggests there isn't. Well, I've, I've never been a spoiler in my life, Jeff, and I'm not going to start now, and I'm not going to handicap at one side or other, be it, uh, any of that. I won't, I won't, I would never be involved in a movement such as that. We have to see clear evidence that there's some other opportunity that we could help solidify our country, unite our country. CNN reported days ago that privately you've been telling people that a Joe Biden health scare or a Donald Trump conviction could give you an opening to run as an independent. Is that the case? There's a lot of things that could give myself or many people. I just, I don't have a burning desire, and I've said that I'm not out campaigning. I will do whatever it takes and sacrifice anything I possibly could to, to save my country and protect my country and bring it together. And I believe we are dangerously, and after today's vote, on the most dangerous thing that we have, a crisis we have facing us, which is the unsecured border, and we have a fix that people that are opposed to the Democrat uh, administration that caused the problem but are willing to fix it today, and the Republicans who have identified the problem, and we worked together and got a bill and a compromise Republican-Democrat bill, the border security bill that we had in front of us today, and they walked away from it because of the politics. That's what's wrong. That's what we should be concerned about. There are certainly Democrats who will hear you say that and say that's why you're needed in the Senate, that you are the only Democrat, arguably, who could, who could win statewide across West Virginia, and that as Democrats face a tough election map uh, for the Senate to try to keep control of the Senate, they need you there. Well, I've said this, Jeff. It's not, I've been here 14 years. I've been in public service for 42 years. I've given everything I have to represent my great state and the beautiful people of West Virginia and to defend the Constitution. I've done everything I can, and I will continue. I've come to the conclusion it can't be fixed here. The politics, the business of politics, the business of the Democrat Party, the business of the Republican Party, the amount of money comes in by just fighting for your own identity and your own party, 
is not what we need for our country, but the business model is so profitable, they're not going to change, Jeff. And unless the people demand changes, it's not going to happen. That is Democratic Senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it very much. Sure thing. Bye-bye. In the day's other headlines, a new wave of Russian missiles and drones struck six regions across Ukraine and killed at least five civilians. The bombardment targeted at least three major cities, including Kyiv. Attacks there gutted several floors of an 18-story apartment building and triggered the city's first major power outage this winter. A pair of bombings in Pakistan killed at least 30 people today on the eve of parliamentary elections. More than two dozen others were wounded. The attacks targeted political offices in Baluchistan province in the southwestern part of the country. One bomb exploded at an independent candidate's office in the Pashin district. The second blew up the office of a radical Islamist party about 80 miles away, but party leaders insisted they won't be stopped. <laughs> God willing, we will maintain our determination and continue our work. We will continue our election activities without any fear. These blasts will not stop us from our working. Late tonight in Pakistan, the Islamic State group claimed responsibility for those bombings. A history-making storm gave parts of Southern California one last drenching today as it moved out. Since the weekend, the system caused nearly 500 mudslides in the Los Angeles area after dropping up to a foot of rain. Collapsing hillsides remained a threat today before drier weather moves in. The storm is now blamed for nine deaths. Five U.S. Marines are missing tonight after their helicopter went down in Southern California during that storm. The wreckage of the Super Stallion helicopter was found this morning in a mountainous area in Pine Valley, east of San Diego. The Marine Corps says the crew had been on a training flight and were returning to their base in San Diego. In Nevada, the Republican primary results are in, and the winner by a landslide is nobody. Former President Trump skipped Tuesday's contest, which did not award any delegates. Instead, his campaign encouraged voters to choose the none of these candidates option, and it beat Nikki Haley by better than two to one. In the state's Democratic primary, President Biden cruised to an easy victory. And on Wall Street, a series of upbeat earnings reports helped stocks move higher. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 156 points to close at 38,677. The Nasdaq rose 147 points, or 1 percent, and the S&P 500 was up 40 points. Still to come on the News Hour, the Supreme Court prepares to hear arguments on whether Donald Trump can be barred from Colorado's presidential ballot. META's president of global affairs on the challenges of AI-generated content and misinformation. The Army veteran co-owner of a women's tackle football team gives her brief but spectacular take on building a team, plus much more. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today rejected a counterproposal from Hamas that would have paused the war in exchange for releasing Israeli hostages over the next few months. But U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said there was still room for negotiation. Nick Schifrin examines the state of diplomacy and what it means for U.S. efforts in the region. At a press conference in Jerusalem today, Netanyahu reiterated his longstanding goals for the war, absolute victory. And he said the Israel Defense Forces could achieve that goal in, quote, a matter of months. The continuation of the military pressure is a necessary condition for the release of the hostages. Surrendering to Hamas's delusional demands that we heard now not only won't lead to freeing the captives, it will just invite another massacre. It will invite a major disaster on the state of Israel that none of our citizens would want to accept. The original proposal called for a six-week pause to release older women and children first, and then a promise of two more releases, including soldiers and the bodies of hostages who died in captivity. Hamas's counterproposal goes further, demanding an Israeli withdrawal first from populated areas and then from Gaza completely. It also demands reconstruction, more than 500 humanitarian aid trucks per day, and the understanding that Hamas would remain in power.
The U.S. has hoped a pause in the war could spark broader regional diplomatic progress. Today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said talks over the hostages would continue. While there are some clear non-starters in Hamas's response, uh, we do think it creates space for agreement to be reached. Netanyahu made clear the war would continue. He said Israel had so far killed 20,000 Hamas fighters and the Israeli military operation would extend into the southern city of Rafah, where more than half of Gaza's 2.3 million people are now sheltering. So where do things stand? For that, we get two views. Marwan Muwasher was Jordan's foreign minister and then deputy prime minister from 2002 to 2005. He's now vice president for studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And Dennis Ross was a longtime Middle East peace negotiator for both Republican and Democratic administrations. He's now a distinguished fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Thank you very much, both of you. Welcome back to the news hour. Dennis Ross, let me start with you. What is your reaction to what Prime Minister Netanyahu said in response to Hamas's counterproposal? I think he really had two audiences in mind. One audience was Yaya Sinwar, who is the head of the military wing in Gaza and actually is the, the person in control in Gaza. Uh, and the other audience was probably the right wing of his own coalition, where he's he knows they're threatening to break the government if he looks like he's prepared to, to end the war or give in too much to Hamas. So I think for Sinwar, what he wanted to signal was, look, you're asking to end the war and you stay in power? No way. Not accepting that. Uh, this was Netanyahu's way of beginning a, a readiness to, to signal that he's going to negotiate, but he's going to negotiate hard. And I would say the Hamas proposal, counterproposal, is itself a kind of first counterproposal designed to produce a negotiation, I don't think there was any Hamas expectation that the Israelis would accept something like this. Marwan Washer, is this a signal that Netanyahu is going to negotiate, even if it is negotiate hard? Well, look, if Netanyahu says that uh, the war will not end until he kills the Hamas leaders, then uh, from the point of view of Hamas, why should they agree to release of hostages and then agree to a truce of whatever, two months, three months, and then after that, they get bombed again. So if this is the real position of Mr. Netanyahu, then I'm afraid that, uh, you know, uh, this is a non-starter. Uh, Secretary Blinken uh, talked about the Palestinian position being a non-starter. I see the Israeli one being a non-starter, if this is the real position. I think the priority today has to be the end, a permanent end. Uh, to the war. After 27,000 people killed, one cannot keep talking about uh, truces that uh, are not permanent. Dennis Ross, is this Netanyahu's actual position or is this a public stance? Uh, and does this doom any effort to end the war in Gaza, even if temporarily? Look, I do think it's a negotiating posture. But I also think that we, we really have two, at this point, two irreconcilable positions. The Hamas position, as Marwan just suggested, is uh, they want an end to the war and they want to remain in power. Uh, and the Israeli position is, at the end of the day, Hamas is not going to be in power. I do think what the actual position should be, at least on the Israeli side, should be the demilitarization of Gaza and the certainty that it can't be remilitarized. I also think you can say you can tie reconstruction to demilitarization, something the Israelis are in the process of doing. No one is going to be able to eliminate Hamas, partly because it's an idea, partly because it's a group, partly because in some ways it's in, embedded, at least sociologically, psychologically, uh, in Gaza. But Hamas not being in power, Hamas being demilitarized, Gaza being demilitarized, those are objectives, I think, that could be achieved. I think if the focus turns to that, then the gaps between the two sides, which seem so irreconcilable, might be bridgeable. Marwan Mouasher, is there a version of Gaza in the future that has Hamas not in power? I, I don't think Gaza is the end game, uh, Nick. The end game has to be the end of the occupation. If we talk about the package where the end game is the end of the occupation and the establishment of a Palestinian state, a lot of these questions that are difficult to answer today become easier to answer. Are we serious about finally ending the occupation and establishing a two-state solution, as the United States says it is? In the end, Hamas has to become a political force. We have seen this with the IRA in Ireland. We have seen this in many uh, countries across the world. We have seen organizations that were called terrorists, but that became political forces in the end. 
look, today the Palestinian polls are clear. 60% of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza want Hamas to stay in Gaza and rule over Gaza after the war. These are numbers that cannot be ignored. The question is, how do we give these people a political horizon so that they do not believe in armed resistance, but that they do believe that uh, finally a process can lead to the end of the occupation? Dennis Ross, let's use that occasion to zoom out. So what the U.S. theory of the case right now is that a temporary pause could lead to larger discussions about exactly what Marwan Mouasher just said, Gaza reconstruction, the future governance of Gaza, and then normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, leading to a two-state solution. Is that the correct approach that the Biden administration is taking? I think it is a logical one, and I think it could be the right one. Obviously, it's not just that the devils are in the details. The Israeli public was traumatized by October 7th. They fear, when you talk about a Palestinian state, that Hamas will come to dominate that state. And Hamas, by definition, doesn't accept a two-state outcome. And this is not just a recent phenomenon. This was the case throughout the 1990s. Every time we were making progress, we got a Hamas bomb. There is an ideology in Hamas that rejects Israel's existence. The question is, do you have a Palestinian national movement that in the end will be dominated by those and who will demonstrate they're dominated and control the movement uh, that is prepared to live with Israel as a nation state of the Jewish people? If that becomes very clear, then you can get a Palestinian state. You're not going to have peace until you have an end of occupation. But there's got to be responsibility and accountability on both sides. On the Israeli side, they're going to have to demonstrate they're prepared to live with an independent Palestinian state. But the Palestinians are also going to have to demonstrate that they reject those who reject the idea of two states. Marwan Washer, is there Palestinian leadership that the U.S. and the region is working on today that could foresee that future that Dennis Ross just imagined happening? Of course. Of course. One of them is in prison, Marwan Barghouti, who is ready for a compromise. Marwan Barghouti, whom Israel tried and convicted of terrorism charges 20 years ago, but maintains uh, his political viability and is one of the most popular Palestinian leaders today. Absolutely. I mean, we talk, Dennis talks about ideologies. What about the ideology of members of the Israeli uh, cabinet today that are openly calling for the expulsion of Palestinians? Ideologies exist on both sides. We need to change the mindsets of both Israelis and, and the Palestinians who today do not believe there is a partner on the other side. And the only way we can change the mindset is if we offer a serious process, not an open-ended process, but a serious process that ends the occupation. If we do that, I believe we can change the mindset of both Palestinians and the Israelis. But today, we cannot have the extremist ideologies once again on both sides dictate the outcome of this conflict. If I could ask quickly both of you to turn to an incident this afternoon in Baghdad. The U.S. military has announced that it took a drone strike uh, that killed uh, one of the leaders of Khatayib Hezbollah, the, one of the pro-Iranian militias uh, in Iraq, uh, responsible for the deaths of three U.S. service members. The U.S. military saying that it killed the commander, quote, responsible for directly planning and participating in that attack. Dennis Ross, first, could this kind of attack end? attacks by pro-Iranian militias on U.S. service members in Iraq and Syria. It's clear that the administration has made a decision that one of the things it has to do is that a threshold was crossed when three Americans were killed. And then when that happens, the American response is going to be disproportionate to what we saw before. The U.S. is clearly trying to change the calculus by showing those who are doing this are playing with fire. Is this going to be sufficient to do it? I'm not sure. Marwan Washer, does this kind of strike, quote, change the calculus? I still think that both the United States and Iran are not interested in widening the conflict. I think that what we have seen so far, both from Iran and from the United States, uh, are tactical engagements. Uh, but I do not uh, think that they are going to amount to a widening of the conflict, and I certainly hope they don't. Marwan Mouasher, Dennis Ross, thank you very much to you both. Thank you. That U.S. airstrike in Baghdad tonight killed a leader of a group that struck American forces for years and was a target of the first American strikes last Friday. But another group bore most of the dead and casualties and claims no connection to the attacks on the U.S. Special correspondent Simona Fultine traveled to the site of those airstrikes in western Iraq and met members of this other paramilitary group for this exclusive report. 
conflict is spreading through the Middle East. 400 miles from Gaza, another front has claimed three American and many more Iraqi lives. We've been driving for hours into the deserts of western Iraq to reach a place called Akashad. It's located near Iraq's border with Syria and has been heavily hit by American airstrikes. Those strikes were the Biden administration's response to a drone attack that killed three U.S. service members in Jordan. But who exactly did they hit? This stretch of barren land has been carved up between a number of armed actors jostling for power and control over the strategic border. Akashat, a small town left abandoned since the war with ISIS, falls under the 13th Brigade of the Popular Mobilization Forces, an umbrella group of paramilitary forces formed to fight ISIS beginning in 2014 and that are now officially part of Iraq's security forces. Abu Saif witnessed the attacks. He tells me that the first missile struck the military hospital. Around three to four rockets hit the hospital. Five people were inside. All of them were killed. The wrecked hulk of an ambulance still lies beneath the rubble. 17 PMF members in total were killed. They targeted other places in this compound so that anyone who's injured can't get medical care. So you think it was on purpose? Yes, it was on purpose. Why else would they start with the hospital? This is the first time Brigade 13, also called Liwa Tufuf, was targeted by the United States, and many here are struggling to understand why. It's not part of the four entities that make up another, more secretive grouping called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq, which has claimed responsibility for attacking American troops at bases throughout Iraq and Syria. We don't have anything to do with the attacks. They can't get to those who carry out the attacks, so they target those protecting the country's borders. The group that is believed responsible for the bulk of attacks on American forces is Kataib Hezbollah. I visited their bases not far from Akashat back in 2021. Kataib Hezbollah is the most powerful of the self-dubbed resistance, but part of it has been incorporated into the larger PMF, and it tries to use this official government-bestowed status to shield itself from American retaliation. The United States has designated Kataib Hezbollah and other members of the resistance as terror organizations. The Pentagon said that American fighter jets hit, quote, terrorist groups supported by Iran's Revolutionary Guards, unquote, and not the Popular Mobilization Forces, or PMF, which is part of the Iraqi state. But the targeting of the PMF's Brigade 13 here in Akashat raises questions about those claims and the accuracy of the intelligence. The other possibility some Iraqi officials worry is that the United States has broadened its definition of what it regards as a legitimate target to all of the PMF. Under heavy guard, the commander arrives to inspect the aftermath of the strikes. His men warily eye an American surveillance drone hovering above. Qasem Musleh heads Brigade 13 and the PMF in this area. He tells me that these installations have never been used to launch attacks on American forces. This place and this entire sector falls under my responsibility. It has no aggressive activities towards American forces. We are part of the Popular Mobilization Forces, and we take our orders from the Prime Minister. There are accusations against you that the 13th Brigade, or Liwa Tufuf, enabled groups like Kataib Hezbollah to launch attacks against the Americans. First of all, I hope that the United States will reveal one piece of evidence that there is support to the resistance factions. There was no leadership here, as they claimed, or people with ties to foreign countries, or who took part in strikes on coalition forces. So you can say with absolute confidence that your brigade has never attacked American forces? Absolutely not, and we won't. What is your message to the American government? First of all, let them review their accounts and their agents who transmit information. The information they received is false. They should verify the information they received because there are innocent people here. The White House gave plenty of advance warning of impending strikes, giving the factions responsible for attacking American troops time to vacate their facilities and leaving others to pay the price, including civilians. We drive onwards to Al-Qaim, where American strikes targeted a Kataib Hezbollah base inside a residential area. 
There I met Anmar al-Rawi. His younger brother, 20-year-old student Abdurrahman, was killed when a missile fell on the family home. I was here when it happened. I carried my brother's body away with my own hands. We are civilians. This is our area. It belongs to us, Iraqis. The security camera captured the impact. Another clip filmed on a cell phone, the sobs of desperate relatives. It's unclear whether this was a direct hit from an American warplane or secondary explosions from weapons depots that caught fire. Who do you think bears the responsibility for your brother's death? In the first place, the Americans. Of course their strike was a reaction to the attack on them, but their response fell on the civilians, not on the militaries. Not one from Kata'ib Hezbollah was killed. They knew there was ammunition in the base and that civilians would be affected. Nearby, people gathered to pay their respects for the dead, Many Iraqis see the U.S. strikes not as self-defense, but as yet another violation of their country's sovereignty. Tribal leader Arab al-Karbuli fears worse is yet to come. Perhaps, if things continue to develop like this with action and reaction by the parties involved, it may lead to an unpredictable regional war. I ask him what the solution is to prevent further escalation. The solution to the solution is the Palestinian issue. An independent Palestinian state with full sovereignty will give an opportunity for security and peace in the entire region. By striking inside Iraq, many here think the United States is fueling anger while not making enough effort to address the root causes of what has already become a regional war. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Simona Foltin in western Iraq. Tomorrow, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments in one of the most consequential elections cases ever. At issue, does the Constitution's Civil War era insurrection clause disqualify Donald Trump from holding higher office? The court will hear a case out of Colorado where its state Supreme Court ruled Mr. Trump is ineligible to be on the ballot there. Other states have come to the opposite conclusion. William Brangham explains the background to this historic case. We fight. We fight like hell. It was a day scarred by chaos and violence. Thousands of supporters of then-President Donald Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol, trying to stop the certification of Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 presidential election. But was that day and the events leading up to it an insurrection? And if so, does an obscure provision in the Constitution prohibit Donald Trump from holding political office ever again? Those are some of the key questions the U.S. Supreme Court will weigh tomorrow as the justices parse a rarely considered provision of the 14th Amendment for the first time in the court's history. So the 14th Amendment was passed a few years after the Civil War. Manisha Sinha is a Civil War historian at the University of Connecticut and one of the many researchers who submitted amicus briefs in this case. The reason why the framers decided to do this was because they wanted to discourage political domestic violence, which is exactly what is happening in the post-war South at this time. Written after the Civil War, the 14th Amendment addresses the rights of American citizens, particularly formerly enslaved people. Of its five sections, it's Section 3 that's the crux of this case. It says no one who took an oath to support the Constitution can ever hold office again if they, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Is it clear to you that January 6th and the events leading up to it and that day itself constitute an insurrection under Section 3? It is my opinion that it does, but it, it is also very much in the historical record. David Blight is a Civil War historian at Yale. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his biography of Frederick Douglass and also submitted a brief to the court. An insurrection, if one looks up definitions of it, is when a group of people engage together 
to resist the power of the federal government by force with a large public aim. And what could be more important than overturning a legitimate election? The mob not only engaged in violence, invaded the U.S. Capitol, broke down its doors, broke down its windows. It led to deaths. It led to all sorts of injuries. It is a miracle there weren't more guns involved. Who could more easily subvert our democracy from within than a commander-in-chief who has already tried to do so? Last December in Colorado was the first time a group of voters successfully won a case against Trump citing Section 3. Even though Trump's legal team argued he was simply exercising his right to question the election and never urged anyone to commit violence, Colorado's Supreme Court, in a split decision, ruled Trump had engaged in an insurrection and ordered him struck from the state's Republican primary ballot. Not long after, Maine's Secretary of State also decided on similar grounds that Trump should be removed from that state's ballot. The U.S. Supreme Court will now try to settle what this 150-year-old provision means and whether it applies to Donald Trump. The former president's legal team will argue that Donald Trump did not engage in an insurrection, that Section 3 isn't applicable because he hasn't been charged or convicted, and that Section 3 doesn't say the president is a, quote, officer of the United States. It's quite clear both to the framers of the 14th Amendment and those who discussed the disqualification clause, that this would apply to the president of the United States. In order to be president, you have to be 35 years of age, you have to be born in this country, and you have to not have incited insurrection against the government of the United States. While the justices debate these constitutional questions, there's an equally pressing political one. If the Supreme Court lets Colorado's ruling stand and more states like Maine take similar action, what will it mean for our democracy when millions of Americans cannot cast a vote for Donald Trump because of a constitutional provision that few voters have ever heard of? For the PBS NewsHour, I'm William Brangham. Meta's policy for dealing with deep fakes and AI is under fire after it allowed an altered video of President Joe Biden to remain online. This week, Meta's oversight board called the company's manipulated media policies, quote, incoherent and confusing. Meta now says it's taking a number of measures to address AI-generated content on its platforms, including labeling them as such in the months to come. Nick Clegg is president of global affairs at Meta, and he joins me now to discuss these concerns. Nick, welcome back to the News Hour. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. So I just want to show people again the image. When you begin to label images generated with AI on your platforms on Facebook and threads and Instagram, it's going to look like this. There's going to be a little watermark in the corner and a label there, AI info. I guess the question is, how do you know it's AI? If it's not generated on your own platform, do you have the tools to detect an AI-generated image if it's created somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, you make exactly the right distinction, which is, of course, if people use our tools to generate uh, AI images, we know that and we can watermark that and we, we do that already. So if you use one of our, our tools to, to, to concoct an image um, using AI, it's, there's a circular um, watermark which makes it very clear that it's not, a, it's not a sort of real photograph taken by a human being. Your question, quite right, is what happens when someone uses someone else's tools and there are more and more of them and they're multiplying and then seeks to share it with their friends and, 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 and post it on Instagram, Facebook threads. And I, I think we've made some real progress as an industry within the, or kind of under the umbrella of an organization called Partnership for AI, which brings together a lot of the main players to develop common standards so that when uh, we, as it's 
sort of called in the jargon ingest. In other words, when we bring onto our platform because someone's sharing it on Instagram or, mm -hmm. or Facebook, something which has been concocted elsewhere, has been generated elsewhere, there, there is an invisible watermark, something which allows our technology to automatically identify it, and then we can choose, as we will choose, to label it so users can distinguish between what is human and not human, what is synthetic and what is and, not And synthetic. to be clear, Nick, I but apologize the for the... Is that something you can do now or something you will be able to do? Uh, it's something we can do now with images and we will be instituting in the weeks and months to come. But the difficulty is that the technology doesn't yet exist across the industry to apply the same kind of common standards on audio or video um, mm -hmm. uh, content. And of course, there's always the risk that people who want to use these uh, tools for malicious purposes will try and evade those rules. So I don't think it is a perfect solution, but just because it's not perfect does not mean that we shouldn't do anything. So th right. this is, I think, the best thing we can do right now in keeping with the state of the technology as it exists uh, today. Well, let me ask you about your policies as they exist today, because it was your own oversight board that said uh, your current policies are a little confusing and incoherent. There was this video that spread on Facebook last year. It was the unaltered original video showed President Biden placing an I voted sticker on his granddaughter's chest. The manipulated one, the fake one, made it look as if he was repeatedly, repeatedly inappropriately touching her, and that spread quite a bit. You made the decision to leave it up. Why did that video not violate your rules? Well, I should be clear, the Oversight Board said that we were right to keep it up, and they actually criticised us for being inconsistent about when we remove content. And they basically said that trying to play whack-a-mole and remove individual bits of content is inconsistent and not effective. So. What we're saying this week is very much in keeping what the, with the, the, the critique that the Oversight Board delivered. Namely, we are now going to label much more visibly for users on a much wider scale content that is artificially, uh, artificially generated. I'm Nick, if I may, but that, that, that video, especially in this election year that we're in, that video showed a presidential candidate doing something he did not do. How worried are you that those kinds of videos are, are going to be spread even more widely and, and they actually could help spread dangerous information in a key election year? Well, I don't think it will be that dangerous as long as we can tell users that it is synthetic, that it is AI-generated. And do remember, of course, that any synthetic uh, content, any AI-generated content about any of the candidates will immediately be noticed by those candidates. So I don't think there's much risk that it'll go somehow unnoticed and many millions of people will see it and, and, and no one will, will realise. And we will then, of course, be able to move if our automated systems and the way that I, I described earlier haven't caught it already, we will then be able to label it. So I'm... I'm, I'm I certainly don't want to be complacent, but I think considerable efforts will be made by us and others to make sure that users can, to the very best of our uh, you know, powers, be able to distinguish between something that has actually been produced authentically and something which has been produced by a AI. And I hope also, uh, in, in, uh, alongside our policies, which uh, mean that no one can run a political ad on Facebook or Instagram without declaring very, and disclosing that they've used AI. And if they do that and they systematically try and avoid that policy, we will, of course, take action uh, against them. Uh, when you say take action to... against them, apologies, but I want to make sure I'm respectful of your time. When you sure. say take action against them, what does that mean? You'll take the videos down, take the ads down? Yeah, I mean, we've got a whole range of, of, of penalties, which of course can start but with a warning if they've done it inadvertently, right through to basically saying they can't run ads on Facebook and Instagram. There's a range of penalties that we can apply, and I would have thought most uh, mainstream campaigns would want to retain the ability to communicate uh, with political ads on our platform. So I think they've got a huge incentive to play by our rules. And what is, what's the role for lawmakers here? I mean, there was a bipartisan bill that would officially ban the use of AI content that deceptively portrays candidates for federal office in political ads. Do you support that bill? I haven't looked at that bill specifically, but I do think there is um, very much um, a need uh, and, and space for regulation. At the end of the day, 
you know, we're talking here about the policies that we have developed to the best of our abilities about how uh, uh, users will be able to, and viewers will be able to decide whether, for themselves, whether something is AI generated or not. But when it comes to elections, you know, the elections belong to the people, to the country, not to big tech companies. And it really should be as part of the democratic process for democratic politicians to come, acro uh, come together across party lines and, and decide for themselves the guardrails that they want to apply in elections. And we, of course, will abide by whatever guardrails they come up with. That is Nick Clegg, President of Global Affairs at Meta, joining us tonight. Nick, thank you very much. Good to see you. Thank you. Rachel Ortiz Marsh is the co-owner of the Tennessee Trojans, a women's tackle football team in Nashville, Tennessee. She founded the team in 2022 with her wife, Tessa, to build community and break barriers for women through sports. Tonight, Ortiz Marsh shares her brief but spectacular take on building a team. The common misconception about women in sports is that we're not as passionate and raw as men are, that somehow we play it differently, but we don't. Ready, set, go. One, two, three, Trojans! I am the owner and founder of the Tennessee Trojans. We are one of 16 teams in the Women's National Football Conference. It's a full tackle 11 on 11 women's football league. My earliest memory of football is when we were in high school and my coach told us that females could never play football. And after that moment, I've been on a mission to play ever since. I'm a sister of five brothers and I played football since I was like three, four years old trying to hang with them. They tackle me and I, you know, I'm ready to get my lick back. I'm still a rookie. This is my second year playing football and uh, my brother got me into it. I love the intensity. Feels like home. Feels like I, I don't get judged, I can be myself. When I was 17 years old, I decided to join the military. And I said, you know, I'm only going in for four years, I'll be back and, you know, 22 years, eight months and 14 days later, uh, when I retired, that's when I came back. <laughs> I started the team with my wife. She is the quarterback of our team. She said one day, I found this newspaper ad about a get together to discuss playing women's football. Up until that point, I had never even known that women's tackle football existed. When I went out to that first game, there was like nothing like it. Seeing women like yourself just being able to be passionate and raw and emotional about something other than what you expect a woman to traditionally be passionate about, which is family, kind of where my journey started. <laughs> the team feels like family. A lot of us come from single-parent homes. We got busy lives, and we lift each other up. My teammates are everything to me. I will give my last to them. This team has benefited women's lives by impacting how they view themselves, how their family views them, the confidence and esteem that they build. For me, this team breathes as, as much life into me as, as I do into them. And I look at them, and I'm just like, they are the reason I'm here. My name is Rachel Ortiz Marsh, and this is my brief but spectacular take on building a team. And you can watch more brief but spectacular videos online at pbs.org slash newshour slash brief. And that is the NewsHour for tonight. I'm Jeff Bennett. And I'm Amna Navaz. On behalf of the entire NewsHour team, thank you for joining us.